Let's go on to chapter 7. We ended with chapter 2. Now we want, I'm sorry, with verse uh, 1, we want to go to verse 2 of chapter 7. Paul is continuing now his appeal to the Corinthians to respond positively to his explanations concerning his ministry among the Corinthian church in light of the charges that were being brought against him by false teachers. He is up an entire six chapters, in fact seven chapters, been dealing with his ministry and the message. And uh, he's going to end that discussion with this chapter. But up to this point, it was a very personal thing that Paul was dealing with here. And in doing so, of course, he lays down a lot of principles for those of us in the ministry and how we as believers are to respond to those who are um, involved in a church ministry and a church life. This is what he says in verse 2 of chapter 7 then, as he continues to make his emotional appeal. He says, please open your hearts to us. This is the New Living Testament. Please open your heart to us. We have not done wrong to anyone, nor led anyone astray, nor taken advantage of anyone. My paraphrase of that is, you have no reason not to be open and truthful and transparent to me, as I have been to you. I have done nothing wrong. I did not lead anyone astray, nor have I taken advantage of anyone. These were charges against Paul, that he was leading people astray and that he was taking advantage. He was only in the ministry for what he could get out of it. These were the charges that he was facing. But he's making a clear statement here. I'm not guilty of those charges at, well, at all. The implication now is that the false teachers were doing this. They were leading people astray and they were taking advantage of the folk there. That was the implication. But he was not like them. He was different. His lifestyle, his beliefs were quite different. And he goes on, verse 3, I am not saying this to condemn you. I said before that you are in our hearts and we live or die together with you. Again, I want you to see Paul's personal love and care for these people. He's very emotional. So I paraphrase it like this. He's saying, now, I am not saying what I have said to blame you or to condemn you. On the contrary, I have always told you that my love for you would cause me to die for you if necessary, even as I am living for you right now. And the implication is, and going through all of these problems with you. I am willing to suffer all of these things because of my love for you. I'm being ridiculed by you. I'm being ostracized by you. I'm being made all kinds of false charges by people in the assembly. But I'm still loving you. I'm still there for you, he says. And so he says in verse 4, I have the highest confidence in you. And I take great pride in you. You have greatly encouraged me and made me happy despite all my troubles. He says, despite all of the problems you've given me, I still take pride in you and I still have confidence in you to do the right thing. What Paul is doing here is preparing his people to receive his explanation concerning the joyful impact that Titus report of how they had responded to his previous letter had caused them to be joyful in the midst of and in spite of tremendous persecutions and difficulties. 
including problems with him. In other words, he's preparing his people to receive uh, this information that he wants to give them, that he hopes will make a change in their relationship. And then in verse 5 he says, When we arrived in Macedonia, there was no rest for us. Now this is the Apostle Paul speaking. This is the one who says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your prayers be requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God passes all understanding, shall guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Now here is this man who preached and taught, taught that tree, saying, I have no rest. I have no peace. We face conflicts from every direction, with battles on the outside and fear on the inside. Paul is once more revealing both his inner and his outer, outer emotional and psychological pain and stress he experienced as he waited to hear Titus' report regarding the Corinthians' response to what he calls a harsh letter. Now, as I mentioned before, we're not sure that this harsh letter that he wrote to them was First Corinthians or another letter that was lost. But we know it was a harsh letter. It was a letter that Paul confronted directly the people with uh, and gave them demands to change. He even left Ephesus where he was and he traveled to Troas in order to find Titus whom he had sent to Corinth with the letter and to find out what their response was to this letter. But Titus wasn't there in Troas. So Paul went as far, I'm sorry, he wasn't there in, um, he wasn't there when he went. Uh, he went looking for him to try to find out what was the response of the Corinthians to his harsh letter. And he was extremely anxious to hear how the church had reacted to his letter of correction. And he is undergoing severe emotional stress and pressure as he awaits to hear this report. Now that's an amazing thing. This Apostle Paul can have no peace or uh, uh, no rest in his soul, as we would say, because he did not know how the Corinthians responded to his letter of correction. This is the Apostle Paul. He reveals that even his arrival in Macedonia did not give him any rest or any peace of mind. He was still emotionally in turmoil. He was still troubled in his soul. But notice now what he says in verse 8. But God, who encouraged those who are discouraged. Remember earlier he began this first epistle with talking about the God of all comfort. Now he's going to show how this God of all comfort comforts him in his discouragement. But God, who encourages those who are discouraged, like he was at that time, Paul was extremely discouraged encouraged us by the arrival of Titus. So he is telling us now exactly how the God of all comfort comforted him in his discomfort and his discouragement. In verse 7 he says, His presence, that's Titus' presence, was a joy. But that's not all. But so was the news he brought, the encouragement he received from you. When he told us first, how much you long to see me. Second, 
and how sorry you are for what happened. And third, how loyal you are to me. And the result was, I was filled with joy. So we see Paul experiencing joy right in the midst of all of this turmoil and all of this emotional pain because of how God provided the comfort through Titus and the response of the Corinthians. So I paraphrase these verses in this fashion. God, who specializes in encouraging the discouraged, encouraged me with the coming of Titus. Just having him here with me was a source of joy. But that's not all. So was the news he brought of how you had encouraged him. When Titus reported to me, first, your great desire to see me, secondly, your sorrow for what had happened between us, and third, how loyal and faithful you are to me, I was completely overwhelmed with joy. So Paul is showing now how the Corinthians brought him joy to calm his troubled soul, as it were. Just the presence of this young man, Timothy, was also a source of joy because he was afraid, he didn't know how the Corinthians would treat Titus because Titus was representing Paul. And Paul was afraid that they might have treated him bad, might not have even accepted him. But now Titus was back and they gave him an entirely different story. All of his concern, all of his anxiety, all of his worry was for nil. Nothing, because everything was just right. This is a real lesson here for us, isn't it? You see, when at times we worry over things we have no control, rather than just leave it in the hand of God. Paul didn't do that here. Paul was worrying because of a letter. Now, you have to think it's true. That letter, whether it's First Corinthians or another letter that we have, is supposed to be what? Inspired by God. But Paul was saying, you can read in a moment, that he was actually sorry that he sent the letter for a while. Sorry that he sent a letter inspired by God. He regretted that. We can see in a moment, but it didn't last long, that regret. But anyway, thank God, Titus finally came. This shows, again, I believe, the importance of personal relationship with the people of God and how we can comfort and encourage one another in times of difficulties. We really need that. I've been experiencing that myself these past few months, these past, this past year, in fact. People have encouraged us and so on. Like this morning, you remember I said that when somebody asked me how am I doing, I said I'm rejoicing in the midst of tribulation. Well, you know what the tribulation is, but I didn't tell you what the joy is. The joy is that today, Nancy and I are celebrating our 52 years of marriage. It's 52 years. You see? Like I said on my Facebook, the Bible says, God says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and the favor of the Lord. Well, I found my good thing 52 years ago and the favor of God. And I'm not going to let it go. I'm not going to let it go. So I rejoiced even in the midst of problems and difficulties. That's what Paul is doing here. And I believe it's God who gives that comfort because he is the God of all comfort. Now that means, you know, for us, we should be looking for individuals that we could bring comfort to. We could join together to pray for a problem, a difficulty, or just encourage in, uh, in, their, in their activities for God or whatever it is. We can bring encouragement to God's people.
But now I wanted to be clear here. Paul is not only finding joy because of the fact that Titus came, but his joy, his major joy, is in the good news that he brought concerning the people. And that's what he's dealing with here. I want you to try the picture, if you can, the meeting of Paul and Titus. Do you think that's just a little, hi Titus, hi Paul? No, no, no. I mean, they, they were just grabbing one another. And you could see Paul. What did they say? You could see Titus. How are you doing, Paul? I've been concerned about you. These guys are uh, uh, embracing one another and excited to share what's going on. Titus wanted to comfort Paul, and Paul wants to see what Titus has been, how he was treated by the Corinthians. But Paul anxious to hear the report, and Titus was anxious to give it because it was such good news. So we have two anxious people getting together at once. But let's be here again, as I say. It's the good news concerning the way that the people received Titus. First of all, we're going to learn that they opened their hearts to them, their hands. They opened their hearts to them and gave them a warm welcome. They accepted him into assembly. They took care of him and everything. And so Paul's fear was allayed right away because he thought that they might have been rejected and they might have treated Titus the way they wanted to treat Paul. You see, it was good news to hear that the Corinthians longed to see the Apostle Paul. Paul was surprised at this. They thought they would be fearful to see him again after writing such a strong letter. But they were desirous of seeing him. And this was in spite, I say, of the determined efforts on the part of the false teachers to alienate the affections of the Corinthians from Paul. Not only were they anxious to see him, the Corinthians, but they also evidenced real mourning and regret for their previous behavior toward Paul. This is a tremendous, tremendous uh, event that Paul is describing here. Uh, what happened because of that severe letter. Titus reported their genuine regard and love for Paul and their earnest desire to please him. And so the apostles rejoicing was not just in the coming of Titus, but in these evidences of the fact that the Corinthians had been obedient to Paul's instructions and that they still felt loyal toward him. That made Paul feel good. Verse 8. I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first. For I know it was painful to you for a little while. I like to call this Paul doing spiritual surgery here. And it came to mind when Dr. Smith was describing to me what he had to do to get at my heart. He says, now, Alan, I don't like to, to do these things to my friends especially. But I have to get into the chest and crack open the bones and cut my way through all kinds of flesh and everything just to get at the heart, just to get... I need to get. I know it's hard. I know it's painful. But in order for you to be cured, I have to do it. This is exactly what Paul is saying here. Paul says, now listen, I'm not sorry that I send that severe letter to you, although I was sorry at first, for I knew it was painful to you for a little while. You know, a surgeon have to do a lot of things to do his job. They have to cut through. There's a pain, everything involved. But it has to be done if the job is going to be done. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying something like this. Now I want to make it clear, Corinthians, although I knew that the letter I sent you would be painful for a short while, 
I'm not sorry that I sent it to you. I had to do what needed to be done. Now this is a powerful lesson for us. Not only on an individual basis, but also as pastors towards people. One of the most difficult things for me to do is to correct or to confront a sinning believer. Especially if that believer is a close friend of mine. Especially if that believer is involved in ministry. And you know that if you confront it, a person says, well, I'm going to quit the church or I'm going to leave the ministry. I'm not going to give to the church anymore. And so you have a tendency of compromising and not confronting that person. And so we sin because we do not want to cause pain to a person who is sinning. But Paul says, I knew it was going to cause pain for a while, a short while. But in the end, you'll find that's what needs to be done. And we need to learn that lesson as well. Because many times our compromise in holding back from individuals who are causing difficulties or problems in relationships or in the church, we do not confront them because we don't want to hurt their feelings. Or we don't want to uh, threaten them in any way to think that they might not be involved in the ministry or not be our friends or don't help us or whatever it is. That's wrong. Paul says sometimes we need to do spiritual surgery. It might hurt at the beginning, but it's necessary for the, for the sickness to be taken care of. And so to summarize, Paul is saying something like this. When the Christians first read his letter, it came as a rebuke to them. And they were pained because Paul was so upfront with them. After sending the letter, the apostle anticipated their reaction to it. And this made him sorry. They, he really thought that they would reject him altogether. Not that he was conscious of himself having done any wrong. That is not the thought here at all. Paul wasn't thinking that it was wrong for him to send a letter. He only knew it was going to cause pain. He was sorry that in carrying out his work for the Lord, it was necessary that others should at times be cast into unhappiness temporarily in order that God's purpose may be worked out in their lives. Paul realized that. He didn't want to do it, but he knew he had to do it if he was going to be faithful to God. And that's the same thing with us. We face that in our individual lives. We face that as pastors. Sometimes we come to passages in scriptures that we know if we preach it as it is given, it's going to impact someone because we know their lives. And we have a tendency with drawing it to holding it back. That's wrong. Paul is saying that we have to be faithful to God regardless. Now, in the latter part of verse 8, Paul emphasizes that though the latter had made them sorry, yet it was only for a short while. The first effect of the letter was to cause pain, but the sorrow did not last. The whole process, the entire process, which the apostle is describing here, may be likened, as I said, to the work of a surgeon. Sometimes we have to cause pain in order to bring joy. And that's what Paul is talking about here. The joy of repentance. And we'll see that as we go on. Verse 9. Now I am glad I sent it. He wasn't before, but now I am glad I sent it. But not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. 
so you were not harmed by us in any way. I didn't hurt you. This is what God wanted to be done so you could be in a position of pleasing him. That's what Paul is saying here. So I paraphrase it in this fashion. I am glad that I sent that severe letter, not because it caused you pain, but rather the pain resulted in both a change in mind and a change in actions on your part. If the kind of, it is the kind of sorrow that God desires for his people to experience. So I did, in fact, not come, cause you harm at all. Paul is saying, now listen, I might have thought I would cause you harm. You might have thought I would cause you harm. But really, in the final analysis, it was no harm at all. Rather, it was God's way of blessing you and blessing me in my ministry by being faithful to it. I was, it would, is not a pain at all. Now this is something. Did it hurt them? Yes, it did. But Paul says, really it didn't hurt. Not when the end is realized. You've got to look at the joy that it brings, he says. Now, Paul then did not rejoice in having inflicted pain on the Corinthians, but rather he rejoiced in that their temporary sorrow led them to the place of repentance. In other words, the sorrow led them to a change of mind, resulting in a change of life. And that is what God is looking for at all times in our life, a change of life for his good, his glory and our good. Someone has said, repentance is not merely a change of purpose, but repentance includes a change of heart, which leads to a turning from sin with grief and hatred towards God and that's what repentance is change of mind that leads to a change of action that causes us to be drawn closer to God and so the sorrow of the Corinthians was according to the will of God in other words their sorrow brought joy to the heart of God this is the joy of repentance the sorrow of the Corinthians was according to the will of God it was the kind of sorrow that God likes to see in his people. Because their sorrow and repentance were of genuine, godly nature, they suffered no permanent ill effects at all from the rebuke that Paul gave them in that letter. They suffered no, no kind of adverse effects, but instead they experienced that right relationship with God. Notice verse 10. For... The kind of sorrow God wants us to experience. Notice that. God does want us to sorrow. But he wants us to sorrow over the right things in the right way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. In other words, there's no sorrow for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. My paraphrase of those, that verse is this. The kind of sorrow that God desires for us is that kind that leads us away from sin and its devastating results. Now when it says results in salvation, it does not necessarily mean salvation from hell, although that could be included. But it talks about Salvation from all of our problems, our difficulties, and everything that we are involved in that is not pleasing to God. is talking about being delivered from that which we should not be involved in because of sin. 
We don't need to be sorry about that kind of sorrow that leads to repentance. Because that's godly sorrow. The the worldly sorrow, on the other hand, do not lead to change of mind or behavior and leads to spiritual death. Here it means no fellowship with God. You see, many times people who get caught in this sin or the results of this sin cause difficulties or pain in their life. And they say they're sorry for it. But you see, that's not repentance. This sorrow for the results of it, not because of the fact that it's hurting God. And that's where the sorrow comes in. This verse contrasts then godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world. Godly sorrow means grief which comes into a person's life after he or she has committed a sin and which leads to repentance. The person realizes that God is speaking to them and so they take sides with God against sin. That's godly repentance. When our minds, our attitude change towards a way of life because we realize it is painful to God. We turn away from it and we get on a course that pleases and honors God. Now when Paul says that godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, as I mentioned, he's not necessarily thinking of the salvation of the soul, although that may be included. The Corinthians were already believers. But salvation is used here to describe the living from any type of sin, any type of bondage, any type of affliction in a person's life. We can repent, we can turn away from things that result in these kinds of affliction. That's the salvation that he's talking about there. Verse 11. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Paul is saying now, consider what has happened through this experience. This severe letter I sent you, your response to it, and your feeling of sorrow. He says, here is what is produced. Such earnestness, such concern to clear yourself, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, and such a readiness to punish wrong. All of these are the results of this severe letter causing sorrow that lead to repentance. You showed that you have done everything necessary to make things right. That's what Paul is saying here. So my translation of that is this. You have demonstrated that you have done everything I have instructed you to do to make everything right. Your repentance is complete. Paul is commending them for how they responded to his letter of correction. And so the apostle points to the experience of the Corinthians as an example of what he said in the first part of verse 10. The very things which he had spoken concerning godly sorrow was manifested in their own lives. We would say today, as evidence of this very fact that you sorrowed in a godly manner, Paul goes on to state various results of the godly sorrow. Notice what he says. My purpose then was not to write about who did the wrong or who was wrong. I wrote to you so that in sight of God, you could see for yourselves how loyal you are to us. We have been greatly encouraged by this. Now, I need to look at the screen, I think, because 
I want to look at each one of the areas that he says, and I think I've missed them out of my notes here, and so I need to look at the screen here. Look at the things that Paul says resulted from their repentance. Such earnestness. This resulted now from their repentance. In other words, he says, as a result of this severe letter, you became diligent and earnest to put things right. You didn't have that attitude before, but it resulted in diligence to put things right says, such concern to clear yourselves, such earnest resolve to rid yourselves of any further guilt or blame for the situation. Their repentance was genuine, a change of mind, an attitude that led to a change of behavior. Paul says all of this resulted from this severe letter. Then he goes on, such indignation, in other words, such regret for allowing sin in the assembly to go on without applying the proper discipline. Because this is probably what they had failed to do. You remember we studied that in the first letter, where there was a man who was involved in immorality, but they didn't discipline him. They allowed it to go on and on. But now Paul is saying, because of his severe letter, their attitude has changed and they want to put it right. And they're diligent. The next one is, it's a such alarm. What fear of having to be corrected by Paul upon his return to them. In other words, they also said, boy, if we don't put this right, if we think this letter is severe, when Paul comes again, it could be even more severe. So we better put things right. Then he says something else, such longing to see me. They had a great desire now to see Paul once again, knowing that they had responded to his severe letter in a godly way. Before, they didn't want to see Paul. They didn't want to see that man anymore. But now, because of their godly repentance, they were longing to see their pastor. Then he says, such zeal. Zeal to have things put right in the assembly for the glory of God. They were anxious to get it done now. Then he goes on. He says, such a a readiness to punish wrong. Such a willingness to now administer discipline to sinning members within the church. They didn't want to do that before, but now they were anxious to do that. They are willing to do that, and they want to do it, and it was all a result of this severe letter. And finally he says, you showed that you have done everything necessary to make things right. You've done everything ready. You've done everything properly, just the way I instructed you. You've demonstrated that you have done everything I've instructed you to do, to make everything right. Your repentance is complete. That's an amazing thing. Your repentance is complete. So the apostle points to the experience of the Corinthians as an example of what he said in the first part of verse 8 about the fact that it leads to uh, repentance, genuine repentance. And genuine repentance is being described here. Change of mind, change of attitude that leads to a change of action. Then he says, my purpose then was not to write about who did the wrong or who was wronged. I wrote to you so that in the sight of God, you could see for yourselves how loyal you are to us. We have been greatly encouraged by this. Now, this is a very troublesome verse for many Translators, because there are four major problems in this verse. I won't take much time with it. The first is, which letter is Paul referring to when he wrote when he wrote to them? Is it the first epistle that we have, 
Or is it a lost epistle? Second, who is the man who had done the wrong? Was it the immoral person we read about in, chapter, in, in the first epistle? Or was it another rebel in the assembly who had done Paul wrong and the Corinthians? Third, who is the man who suffered the wrong? Now, if it was the immoral man that talked about in the first Corinthians, then the one who suffered wrong was the father of the one who was sinning because he was staying with his father's wife, right? But some says that probably meant that his father had died. So we don't know. So this is a problem here. And then there's a little uh, problem in how the verse should be read. Uh, should the last part of the verse be translated, our care for you or your care for us? Now, how we've looked at it, it is... Uh, uh, my care for them or your care for us. So that's just a little problem. We won't get into that because that has nothing to do much with the practical application of this. Now, in verse 13, because Paul's letter had the desired effect, Paul was comforted. The Corinthians had repented and taken sides with him. In addition, he was encouraged by the enthusiasm Titus showed concerning the saints because he had been refreshed by his contact with them. Notice what he says. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was about the way all of you welcomed him and set his mind at ease. So you see, Titus was concerned about going to Corinth himself. This just shows you how a little squabble in the church could cause so much discomfort and unease of people. Titus was actually afraid to go back because he thought that he might have been treated ill with, by the people. I had told him how proud I was of you, Paul says, and you didn't disappoint me. I have always told you the truth, and now my boasting to Titus has been proved true. So this implies that before Paul sent Titus with that letter, Paul didn't say anything bad about the Corinthians. To the contrary, he was saying, these are good people. I love them, I care for them, and everything else. And Paul boasted about the Corinthians to Titus before he went. And uh, just as everything the apostle had ever said to the Corinthians was true, so his boasting to Titus had been found to be true also. And so he rejoiced in that. Verse 16. Now Titus cares for you more than ever when he remembers the way all of you obeyed him and welcomed him with such fear and deep respect. That fear means godly respect and deep respect. It is clear then that Titus did not know what kind of reception he would get when he reached Corinth. Perhaps he had anticipated the worst, but when he did arrive, the Corinthians gave him a cordial welcome. And not only that, they... They made themselves special to them, and to him rather, by being obedient to the instructions that he carried from the Apostle Paul. In other words, they opened their hearts to Titus the way they opened their hearts to the Apostle Paul. And so when the Apostle says they received Titus with fear and trembling, it means that they did so with a sense of reverence before the Lord in the matter and, and, and concerning the matter and their desire to please him. And so he says in verse 16, I am very happy now because I have complete confidence in you. So you see, 
Paul now could give a sigh of relief. All of that thing he was worried about and concerned about, gone the drain. He's forgotten now. He says, I am very happy now because I have complete confidence in you. Meaning that because you have responded to my severe letter in a godly fashion. And so what a relief this must have been for Paul. The Corinthians had proved themselves worthy of his trust. So this includes the idea also that because they had taken a proper attitude and reverence to the matter discussed in the first epistle, Paul feels justified in having full confidence, full confidence in them, not doing that anymore, and making, making sure that discipline was exercised in the assembly. So this verse actually completes the first section of Second Corinthians dealing with the ministry and the authenticity of his, of his apostleship. He's going to go on now in chapters 8 and 9 to talk about the grace of giving. And this is another wonderful chapter that Paul brings here. But this chapter then gives us the idea that God is actually happy and joyful when we repent of our sins and we turn away from them and we put things right. That means in every era of your life. And that's why I believe, as I told you here before, that I believe the Christian life should be a life of daily repentance. We should always be repenting of the things that we know are not pleasing to God, changing our mind, changing our attitude, changing our way of life so that we could honor and glorify God. That's what we have in this chapter. Let's close out. Next time, Lord willing, we'll be looking at the grace of giving or grace giving as Paul discusses in chapter 8. And he's dealing with it because he's in Macedonia and he has the Macedonians as example of those who give according to grace and not out of restraint. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that your word can bring about a change of mind and a change of attitude. We pray, Lord, that we might also allow it to bring about a change of action in our lifestyle. Help us to show love and concern for one another in such a way that we never compromise our beliefs, that we're always open and transparent to one another. Help us not to be afraid to confront one another where sin is involved. Help us, we pray, to honor you in all that we do. Help us to give you joy by repenting from those things that are not pleasing to you so that we could be holy people in your sight. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you and the Lord bless you.